really enjoy preaching from weirder passages of Scripture. Uh, they're just fun to do. They offer a lot more questions, sometimes interesting things uh, to, to look into. And I sometimes have difficulty with more common text or more uh, familiar things to preach through because I think, what new is there to say about this? But I have a difficulty with Easter in a different way, not just because it's familiar or common for us, um, but because I, it's not because I think, can't think of something new to say. It's because I just want to do justice to the story, right? To the, our Lord is risen. It's good news. Have you ever had anxiety when uh, thinking about sharing the news of Jesus with someone else and just thinking, I just want to make sure I say the right thing? Have you ever had that happen in your own life? That's what I have happened. I love, love to talk about Jesus. I just want, to, I just want them to understand how good this news is. What I've discovered over the years is that maybe I worry too much about it, right? Anytime that we talk about Jesus, it's good. Anytime that we can share our faith with others, it's powerful. When we speak the gospel to others, it releases the power of God into our world. And it's a good thing. It changes hearts and lives because the gospel's true. It's compelling. Um, I remember the first time reading through the Easter story with our kids in their storybook Bible, the first time they really kind of grasped what was going on. They've been in church all their, all their lives. They've heard about Jesus. We, uh, they've loved Jesus. And uh, as we were reading through it, we got to the story of the Last Supper and of Judas betraying Jesus. And they said, he did what? He did what now? He can't, he can't do that. That's Jesus. And then Jesus is arrested and dies. And Deacon goes, he dies? He can't do that. He's like the main character in all this. And he, I was like, you want me to read some more? Are you, should we end tonight or should we keep going? We better read some more, Dad. And so we turn the page and we get to the resurrection. And he's just hooping and hollering on the bed. Uh, Deacon is so excited. Can we believe he, is risen. he really is the Son of God? He really is Lord and Savior. My friends, this is such good news. So yes, this morning, I just want to get it right for us. I just want to talk about Jesus. So, uh, The last few months, we have been working our way steadily through the Gospel of Mark. We've been going chapter by chapter, not necessarily looking at every verse or every passage, but kind of getting representative passages from the Gospel of Mark. Um, the last several chapters of Mark take place all in one week, all during this last week of Jesus' life before the cross and then the resurrection. Rather than skip over all of the passages between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, uh, I thought it would be helpful for us to pause and then resume the narrative next Sunday. Uh, and since tradition holds that much of Mark's gospel is actually compiled from uh, Peter's own eyewitness accounts, this week we're hearing directly from Peter about the good news. By the time we get to this letter that Peter wrote, Peter finds himself writing to believers as they're scattered all over the Roman Empire gathering in small but growing congregations despite intense persecution they continue to face. In effect, he's tackling one big question. What does it mean to live faithfully in the hope of the resurrection, this good news that we have received, when my current reality is full of pain and suffering and trial? In a few short verses, we see some of the foundational elements of the hope that we have in Jesus. A new birth, Participation with Christ, joyful assurance. Uh, today I'm going to talk about our hope for today, our hope through today, and our hope for tomorrow. 
So first, let's reflect on our hope for today. In 1 Peter uh, 1.3, he essentially says, we worship because God has mercifully enabled us to begin a new life through Jesus' resurrection. This is what he means by new birth, right? Those of us who have grown up in the church might have it lost on us how weird of an image this idea of new birth is. But I think of the passage in John 3 with Nicodemus, and Jesus uses this image for the first time with Nicodemus, saying we ha- you have to be born again in order to understand the things of the Holy Spirit. And Nicodemus says, what? What does that mean? What, do I have to crawl back in my mother's womb? How am I supposed to do that? He really takes the image, the image uh, literally. But honestly, is, is the image... Uh, and the ridiculousness of that, that far removed from how impressive the actual truth is, right? The hope that we have is that in Jesus, we actually can be changed for the better. As if starting a completely new life. We actually can experience life change. All of the things that we feel like are just habits that are rooted deeply in us, they're part of us, that maybe we don't like, but we just feel like, oh, is there any hope to change? We actually can be changed. My parents were divorced when I was pretty young, and I won't get into the circumstances of all that. That's their story to tell, not mine. But what I will say this is this, is I was really a pretty angry kid. I didn't know how to express my hurt, my emotions, and for a long time I took it out on the football field. It meant that I was actually a pretty decent football player when I was in Little League football. And so I just really wanted to hit people. I really wanted to get out and and hurt somebody. And so I did that. And I I did pretty well. It worked then because it was Little League football and everyone else was also small. Uh, I used to joke I stopped playing football because everyone else got bigger and I didn't. But uh, the truth, though, is that I gave my life to Jesus when I was around 10. And in the years following, I gradually started learning more and more about who Jesus was and what he was doing in my life, what his grace meant in my life. And slowly the anger that I had started to fade away. I didn't really care about hitting people that much anymore, trying to prove myself to anyone, because I was happy. I was happy in Jesus. It was a horrible thing for my football career. But I'll take that swap any day, right? And that same process has happened over and over in my life. Freedom from despair when family members have passed away unexpectedly. Freedom from uh, bondage to uh, my own sense of self-worth in a relationship when I experience heartbreak uh, and and breakups. Freedom from anxiety about what's going to come next tomorrow and how am I going to provide for things? What's going to happen? There are still places of brokenness in my life, places of hurt, that I discover that Jesus needs to heal, but there's more and more joy with, with Jesus every day because he continues to make me new. Peter describes this as the cause of our joy. In verses 8 and 9, he says, We have believed without yet seeing fully because we are already receiving the promise of our salvation. We're already seeing it. It may not be full and complete yet, but we're already seeing evidence of our lives that he really is changing things. And it has brought us profound joy. He says, inexpressible joy. We are being made new. And it brings us great joy. But yet, sin does still permeate our world. And we do experience trial. 
So we have hope for today, but also hope through today. In verses 6 and 7, Peter says, Believers can have joy in the midst of trial because we know that our faith has proved genuine through trial and that that's a precious gift of worship. He says it's like gold that's tested and refined by fire, that our faith is refined through trials and results in greater glory. When uh, refining precious materials like gold, we know that when you heat it up to high temperatures until it's molten and hot, it lets impurities rise to the surface and be skimmed off the top and separated out. This isn't to say, though, that we're being tested just to check whether our faith uh, is strong enough to deserve salvation. It's not as if God is sending suffering or trials our way in order to check up on us, uh, to make sure that we have enough faith. God, God knows that answer already. But when these trials display the purity of our faith and hardship, it proves to us and to the world that Christ really can sustain us. That he really can do something about our broken hearts in the midst of hardship. That hopelessness and despair do not have the last word to say. Uh, I've shared before how I really dislike the phrase, uh, everything happens for a reason. Yes, everything happens for a reason. And sometimes that reason is that people are stupid and make really bad choices that affect the world. But not, you know, and not everything has to be guided by God's sovereign design in order to have meaning. But there is meaning in our suffering and our pain, precisely because Jesus is there with us, sustaining us, comforting us, empowering us, using all of the pieces of our life together for good. Later in chapter 4 of 1 Peter, verse 12, he says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. This is exactly like what Jesus has to say. In some of his last words to the disciples after the Last Supper in John 15, he tells them, If they hate you, remember they hated me first. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you as well. He also says in John 16, 33, I'm telling you this so that you'll have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. He's already, he's already doing something in us, in our world, bringing life out of hardship. And there's meaning in our lives, even in the difficult moments, even in our seasons of feeling distant from God, even in pandemics, even when everything seems like it's falling apart. He's there with us. I love a song by uh, Matt Mayer. It's called, You Are on the Cross. And the verses, it keeps saying, where were you when this happened? Where were you when sin stole my innocence? Where were you in all of my suffering, all of my tears? And the chorus just remembers, you were on the cross. He's experienced it all with us. He's been to the depths of human suffering and experienced that with us. 
is also uniquely the only one who has overcome death. He identifies with us, and he can help us. We participate with Christ when we suffer for doing good, and that is good news because we know that in the end, our suffering will give way to glory. Finally, we have hope for tomorrow. Peter roots everything he's saying uh, of this hope in the knowledge that we now have an inheritance in God's kingdom that's never at risk and will never lose value. I heard a preacher tell a story once about a man who unexpectedly received a fortune uh, as an inheritance from some unknown relative. He'd never even seen or heard or known about him. Um, So the man had to go into town to, to sign all the paperwork and to claim this inheritance. And on this way, he was in a carriage and it completely broke down. Like, they hit some rock or something, the wheel completely collapsed, and then it, like, somehow hit the harness, the horse reared up, snapped the harness, and ran off. It was this, like, how was he going to get anywhere after this? But he just laughed. He just walked the last several miles into town because he knew what was laying ahead of of him for his inheritance. This thing that normally would have been an incredible inconvenience, at the least, could have uh, ruined his day. It was just a minor obstacle because he knew the inheritance that laid before him. Peter here isn't trying to trivialize our pain and our suffering. He's known a great deal of it himself. Jesus has known even more. Jesus knows what it means to be abandoned, abused, mocked, betrayed, to be hungry, to be thirsty, to be humiliated. Our God has identified us with with us in those places of deepest need, and he's overcome. He's given us an inheritance in his kingdom. We are not just servants, but we're brothers and sisters. We're a part of God's family, and that is not at risk. In verse 5, Peter says, We have faith that we are guarded by God's power until Jesus returns to set all things right. This isn't a guarantee necessarily of our physical safety, but it is a promise that God will keep us and sustain us through whatever may come. And when Jesus returns, he'll set all things to rights. All things will be, made, will be made new. Satan and evil will be vanquished. Death will be no more. And this salvation that we received, it's not just personal, like an inner spiritual thing. It's a radical reorientation of the entire cosmos, that everything will be made new. I love that passage in Romans, in chapter 8, where the Apostle Paul says that right now, it's, it's like creation groans as if it's in the process of childbirth. We've had four kids now. I've gone through, we have twins though too, so I've only gone through the childbirth process three times, really. Uh, I was uh, observing. I didn't actually go through it myself. But it's, it's an ordeal. And I got to uh, watch as my wife, you know, gave birth to new life, and I got to watch through the whole process as she, she bore this life in her. Uh, and in some profound and mysterious way, we're to understand that all of this life that we're experiencing right now is like, comparable to life in the womb. But one day, all of creation will experience new birth. What will it be like on the other side of that? I remember especially when Lydia was pregnant with Annabelle. And Deacon would try to say hi to Annabelle sometimes. He would poke and, and prod and, 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 uh, and coo. And I still remember wondering how she perceived all of that from inside, how Annabelle did. Um, all this prodding around mom's belly, the calling at her. 
her perception of this outside world was limited at that point, right? But now she experiences it in full. I could possibly say the same thing about when uh, Lydia was pregnant with the twins, but honestly, all of that was a blur. I don't remember most of it. <laughs> but here's my point, though, right? We only get a few brief pictures in Scripture of what, of what life is like in the new heavens and new earth, what it's going to look like when we're face-to-face -face with Jesus. But what we do know is that all the pain, all the suffering, the sin and brokenness of this life will be stripped away. We'll be with our Lord face-to-face. And this is the hope that we have in Jesus. That he is alive. He's risen. The grave is empty. And in his resurrection, Jesus has inaugurated his kingdom. He will come to finish the job. We can believe and trust in that because we already experience it in part. We can believe and trust in that no matter what trials that we may face in the meantime. We can believe and trust in that because the tomb is empty. Jesus has risen. He's already won. May that lead us to praise this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that we have confidence in you. That you have already won the victory. And we know, Lord, that we are often forgetful. Just as I always think of how Peter saw you risen and yet still had that moment of, uh, guys, I'm going back fishing. It's all I know what to do. Even, even when we have, Lord, experienced your goodness in our lives, we still sometimes forget. We lack a knowledge or, or wisdom of how to move forward in our lives and to make sense of it. But you are faithful and your mercies are new every morning. You give us a hope peace. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to remember. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to change our hearts. Allow our eyes to be fixed on you, the author and finisher of our faith. Help us to give you the praise that you deserve. You are risen. You are Lord.